Hey there, everyone, and welcome to a special episode from Thinking is Cool, the show designed to make your next conversation better than your last. My name is Kinsey Grant, and I'm your host. I am also a journalist who has spent the better part of the last decade talking to people. I just wrapped on my first season of Thinking is Cool, and talking to people was pretty much the most important thing I did in those 10 episodes. But even more important, continuing to talk to people. Because our thinking is only as good as our willingness to keep doing it. So today, I am proud to introduce to you our mini-series called Continuing the Conversation. The goal of this episode you're about to hear and the series it's part of is to encourage us all to revisit thought-provoking ideas and to reach out beyond our bubble to hear other folks' perspectives. This episode of Continuing the Conversation will rely heavily on my very first episode of Thinking is Cool, which you might remember was about making porn suck less. The conversation you're about to hear will be a lot more enjoyable if you've listened to that episode of Thinking is Cool, so if you have not, go check it out. And if you have, get ready to go even deeper on the ethics of adult entertainment with one of the brightest minds in sex, Caroline Spiegel. Enjoy the conversation and see you soon. Hello, Caroline. How are you doing today? Hi, Kinsey. Thank you so much for having me. I am a longtime listener, first time caller. (laughs) Well, I am very grateful for your support. It is so great to have you today to talk about what we're going to talk about. We have a big conversation lined up and I want to just let everybody know who you are. I agree to do as Caroline because I've had the pleasure of getting to speak with you before. But for those of our listeners who have not met you, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I am Caroline Spiegel. I run a company called Quinn. It's audio porn for women. So audio porn, some people call it audio erotica. It's short form audios that are designed to make you orgasm. And I'm sure we will dig in more, but that's kind of the short. I love it. We'll certainly talk about Quinn at length today. And I love that within like the first minute of this, we get to use the word orgasm and everybody needs to get more comfortable with it. Mom, dad, even if you're listening, It's completely normal. We're going to use the word. Everybody stop being so cringy. But like I said, we're going to talk more about Quinn at length today. This is is something that I feel like really passionately about. It's a a new development for me, (laughs) my personality. But I would love to hear how you might introduce yourself without talking about Quinn. Just as somebody who is interesting and smart and cool, like outside of your job, how do you introduce yourself to people? That is such a nice question. (laughs) I would probably introduce myself You know, I'm really interested in like women and sex and life and the internet. I guess if I were introducing myself about like my interests, it would be like those things. But also, I think I'm pretty goofy. Yes. (laughs) Um, Goofy mood. (laughs) Goofy mood. And I have a dog. I live in LA good time gal. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I am so here for it. And I, but I think it's important to ask people these, these questions because I'm sure often when you do interviews with people, your job is the number one thing that people want to ask about. And that makes sense. You're building this really cool company. You're somebody who has a ton of potential. That is what people want to know. But I think who we are beyond what we do for a living often informs the success or the failure of what we do for a living. So I'm glad to hear that. Goofy, love it. Good time gal all, all the way. So now we can talk about your job. <laughs> so Quinn is a, a company, a product that I am intimately familiar with. And I, I choose those words uh, very specifically. I am a user. I am a paying user. I, I love the product. I think it's um, really incredible. So 
Tell me more about Quinn, why you started this company, why you saw the need to start it in the first place. Well, it's so interesting, right? I was thinking about this conversation and I feel like there's almost, for all of the questions you're going to ask, there's like two angles, right? There's like my personal anecdotal experience of my life as Carolina's goofy good time gal. And then there's sort of like a zoomed out existence and the different society and societal forces that shape everything. So for example, with this question, like, why did I start Quinn? You know, I started Quinn because honestly, I couldn't get off to Pornhub, like tube site porn. And then when we like zoom out, that's because a lot of it is made for like the male gaze, you know, it's not made ethically. And there are all these like underlying reasons. But for me as a consumer, it was really just like, not that hot, I couldn't get wet. And like, so I wanted a different option. I think that that is a completely normal way to start a company, right? I think when when we think about the sex, adult entertainment, porn, sexual wellness, all of this, often we don't give the same grace that we would for any other kind of startup that you started something because there was a need. It's, it's not normal for people to say, I couldn't get wet, I couldn't get off. But like, that's that's a need, a need that needs to be met. And when you see a wide open space, why not build something that could meet the need of the consumer? Because certainly there are people out there who had a, a similar experience to that that you had. Now, now that we know a little bit more about Quinn, I think it's it's probably obvious that this conversation is our effort to do something that we're kind of labeling at Thinking is Cool, continuing the conversation. A lot of the topics that I brought up in the first season of Thinking is Cool were all about generation-defining issues that were big and thorny and complicated and needed time and space and a lot of different viewpoints and considerations. But they were also 35-minute podcast episodes. I think the porn one was 37 minutes and 59 seconds, which was on the longer side for the season. So it's a little unrealistic to expect that we could cover all of our bases, talk about all of the different facets of these huge, big topics in just a couple of minutes. So that's why we're doing this, continuing the conversation, to hear more about your perspective as somebody who has been really involved in this space, vocal, successful in this space, and who's just a smart, cool person who is fun to talk to and fun to think with. So that is why we're doing this. I love that. And and I always joke with my friends, like we'll get into really heated debates and long conversations and we'll just be like, all right, let's chalk it up to a mental exercise. Like no one has to win, no one has to lose. It's like, it's really a good, it just makes me feel good to like dig into these issues no matter if we reach the like quote unquote right answer about it. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's kind of the fun of what we're doing with all of this. There really is no right answer. I just would like to talk to you about these things and we can have constructive conversations and nobody has to be right or wrong. And certainly talking about sex and porn fits into that category, I would argue. So with all of that being said, Let's start with kind of a, a baseline understanding for, let's say, a newcomer in the porn space as a consumer, not as a, a producer. What do you think have been some of the biggest failures of the quote unquote traditional porn industry? When we talk about some of these bigger tube sites like Pornhub, what are the biggest failures of, of these companies when it comes to creating a more ethical industry? I feel like there are a lot of ways we could go about talking about it. I think one interesting thing is to look at the evolution of porn in general, you know, like the internet really exploded what we currently think of as porn. I think adult content up until, I don't know, the late 90s was really a totally different breed. And now, you know, I sound like a mom, but it's like any old like eight-year-old can pull up, you know, gangbang, hentai, whatever, but it's really, it's true. Um, and they do. So it's, it's really a lot of violent content. And I don't even mean like violent as, as an always negative, but there's 
if you watch porn, it's, a, it's like, it's really violent. There's a lot of like smashing and, and pounding. There's a lot of unrealistic bodies, right? Bodies that you probably wouldn't see if you went out to a bar and hooked up with someone. And then I guess kind of the main refrain of kind of like the feminist critique of porn is it doesn't prioritize female pleasure. A lot of women come from grinding their clit onto their partner or rubbing their clit or something like some variation on that. And in porn, you're like hard pressed to find that, which is kind of atrocious, right? If I'm a woman and I'm trying to orgasm something, I would like to see the way that I orgasm. Yeah, I I completely get it and agree. This is where people are are consuming porn. And typically it's not created in any realistic way, to your point, that portrays the ways that women actually enjoy sex and enjoy intimacy and enjoy spending time with a partner. It's just not there. And it's it's so frustrating. But at the same time, you have to to wonder, you know, is this the internet's fault? <laughs> like I I think it, it kind of gets at this question of was the internet a net good or a net bad for the world? We could talk ourselves into a lather trying to figure that out, right? But I think when you think about it in terms of the world of porn more specifically, on one hand, it did open up the possibility of, like you said, like an eight-year-old finding like a gangbang video on the internet pretty easily. Like if I can find it, they can probably find it. But it also, in a lot of ways, I think did make people who perhaps wouldn't have felt comfortable going to a store and buying porn, like buying a, a Playboy magazine, you can access that in a more private, more intimate way. But it also has given us these unrealistic expectations of what sex should look like and feel like and be like for men, women, and everybody in between. But like, I don't know, like, and you're a product too, right? Like Quinn relies on the internet. How do you decide whether this has been good or bad, this explosion of content? Is it possible to? God, you know, I don't know. But I I, I think to give us even more of a sense of like, to the point of is porn good or bad, this is one of the things that like people have been super divided about, you know, one of my favorite feminists, Andrea Dworkin was like, super anti 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 all porn is basically hatred of women period. And then obviously you have like a big movement in sex positivity, sex workers right now who are like, it's not porn. That's the problem. It's, it's unethical porn. That's the problem. They're like independent studios, only fans. That's fine. That's even encouraged, but don't be using this kind of fucked up existing system. Um, I think one argument, right, people say if something's online, people aren't doing it in real life. So that's like, that's the case for like rape content, right? It's like, but if I'm someone who likes really deranged content, and I can watch that at a, cl- at a click of a button, you know, online, um, I'm less likely to do that in real life. Hmm. Truth of that is actually not, that's actually not the case. The case is that as rape content proliferates or as that becomes a more like normalized thing of, oh, women actually like being raped or, oh, women actually like non-consensual sex, that actually increases, you know, violence against women. And 80% yeah. of eighty percent of online porn features violence against women. And I'm not trying to be a downer here. Like, I obviously, I make porn, so it's really not a big, <laughs> it's really not a, I'm not like, I don't feel that strongly about this, but I do think, I, I, I think sometimes the sex positivity movement can be misleading. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. A lot of the discourse around sex positivity is totally giving in to the things that you might have considered to be like weird that you're sexually into and owning them and feeling comfortable talking about them and feeling comfortable voicing what your needs are. But perhaps your needs are not necessarily aligned with a partner's needs. But because you've consumed all of this content that suggests that that's okay, it, it skews your vision. And I, I think this, you know, in the, in the spirit of actually continuing the conversation 
in the episode that I made for Thinking is Cool about this, you know, about making a more ethical porn industry, a lot of it centered around the biggest problems that I viewed with creators, you know, that that porn creators, people who acted or, or were involved in porn production, that they weren't being fairly compensated for their work. They were not being recognized for their work. They were simply not making money off of the work that they were doing for tube sites. But there's also this second side of this conversation, too, that not only do those tube sites um, in a lot of ways like denigrate the the role of the creator, they also create unrealistic expectations for all of us. And that's something that we didn't even get, really get to to touch on. This was kind of a creator economy conversation in a lot of ways. But in talking with you, it, it's a lot more obvious that this isn't just a problem for the creators. This mass production of porn content is also a problem for the people who are consuming it. Like we have created this entirely different framework for understanding sex and sexuality because of these tube sites. Definitely. And I, it's similar to sort of fast food, if you will, with an increase in technology and science, we can make food that tastes better and better and better. And that gives us that rush of like sugar or whatever, but it doesn't mean we should be consuming it. Right. So it's like definitely this porn like gives us the nut, like, and it's, and it does the job and it's a quick hit. It's sort of like a Big Mac. But like, we have to think like, do we want to really eat only Big Macs like for the rest of our life? Yeah. I mean, even think about the length of some porn content, right? Am I willing to sit through 30 minutes of like watching someone else do foreplay? Or am I like six minutes in and out, <laughs> quick and dirty? Like you have right. to be honest with yourself about that. Right. It's not an HBO special, right? I'm not like watching this for the plot. That's my head of content always says that. She's like, it's not an HBO special. I'm like, that's so true. <laughs> I love that. So this I think is is touching, um, you know, pretty significantly on, let's call it the the perception of porn as like the everyday proletariat kind of people, the ways that people who are probably having sex a normal amount, um, whatever a normal amount of sex is, uh, but that we interpret porn in our everyday lives. I think that, you know, we often still as everyday people have a lot of trouble having honest conversations about watching porn to say mm -hmm. that you watch porn on a podcast is pretty outlandish, right? But it would be completely normal for me as a 26-year-old woman to say that I believe in the concept of sexual wellness, that I think sexual health is important. It's a little bit more palatable. It's a little bit more marketable. But how do these two seemingly different parts of the internet, right? When we're talking about the content that we consume, what are the similarities? What are the biggest differences? Just any context that you have on this as somebody who's a founder in this space, in both of these spaces, I would I would argue. The concept of sexual wellness is really interesting. I think also the concept of wellness is very interesting. I think there's an argument to me that there's not much a human being can do other than like move regularly, drink water and like eat real food to make them quote unquote well. However, we have like a multi-trillion bazillion dollar industry trying to convince us to use all these products, right, to be more well. And I think like wellness right now is actually kind of synonymous with a sort of like natural beauty. I don't know if like wellness really has to do with health so much as it has to do with like an aesthetic. And I think tying sex into that, it sort of works, right? It's like this sort of like sex positive, free flowing, beautiful woman who does yoga and like is shiny and shops at Erewhon. And it all is sort of this package that we're being sold. And I think that's really interesting because I think women are very rarely marketed products that don't have to do with them improving. So it's like all products that are like shelled to women, right? Are like 
be skinnier, be, be prettier. And if you buy this product, you will be that. So in a way, you know, like they're not really selling a product to a woman, but they're selling a product to, or they are, but like they're selling a product so that a woman looks better so that she appeals to men. <laughs> I'm so crazy and feminist. Blowing my mind. <laughs> like sitting here with my jaw on the floor. Because it's true. It's completely it's true. Completely true. true. Yeah. And so that's why I like hesitate around sexual wellness. It's like, because do you genuinely, like when you're, maybe I like drink water to like be more well or like exercise more well. But like when I'm like horny, it really doesn't have that much to do with like my health. It's more just like some, it's like going dancing, right? It's for pleasure or like eating a really great dessert. It's like, it feels good. And I think the conversation around pleasure in America is so fucked up. Like people have a really, really hard time in America doing things for pleasure. We have a very warped understanding of like what pleasure even is because everything's like grind till you die and then you can have a cookie. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like really like the only reason you could ever have something good is like as a reward. Yeah. Even the female orgasm. And I, I have experienced this phenomenon as something that is marketed toward like, it makes you sleep better. It makes you more attractive to men. Like the flush in your cheeks or like your nipples getting hard. Is, those are all things that are attractive to men. And nobody just says like, hey, this is something that just will feel good to you. Right. Right. Wow. <laughs> it's like the, the Pandora's box has been open. Now everything that I consume, like, am I doing this because I like it? But it's, it's I don't, I don't know. I think that like this idea of, of hustle culture and not just committing to things because we want to and because they feel good and because they're pleasurable, we're hard pressed to unravel that, right? Like, I think we've gone so far that even now when we talk about this concept of like enjoying something or or being sexually well or like sexually healthy, sex positive, it's still it's wrapped in this kind of veneer of late stage capitalism. So I'm curious as a founder in this space, how do you avoid that like trapping? How do you how do you convince people that this is just something that feels good? It doesn't have to be perfectly like millennial pink and marketed exactly to you. This is just something that's enjoyable. You know, honestly, we, we have, we do what works. So like, I, I think that's another big piece of Quinn is we wanted to really meet women where they are. So like, if you listen to Quinn, it's a lot of men moaning and dirty talking and saying how hot you are. And obviously, like in an ideal world, that wouldn't be the thing that really does it for women, you know, but like that does women really crave feeling desired by men, straight women, straight young women to back up, like, would it be better to have a woman? And this kind of goes back to our like, if the content is available online, what does that encourage? But if you commodify male desire, which is what Quinn is kind of trying to do, right? Like, you can just download the app and listen to a man desire you. That kind of, I think, gives women more power because instead of having to go on Hinge, find a random you know, guy in Murray Hill and have terrible sex, you can literally just listen to Quinn. That's kind of the idea. But ultimately, I would like to get to a place in society where women don't crave male desire as much as they do. And that's one of the biggest questions I have in my life. Will we ever get to a place where the whole world doesn't revolve around like what men find desirable? But in the meantime, I want to make it something you can buy. I want to make the the male, the feeling of being desired by a man something you can just experience on your own rather than like needing to physically be with a man. Yeah, honestly, like doing doing God's work out here for the <laughs> women who have been single in their 20s in New York City. 
<laughs> Emory Hill comment. Just <laughs> I have to echo that. It could not be more accurate. But then on the sexual wellness thing, like if we want to get approved by like the app store or by Stripe or whatever, like we have to be like, we have to be a wellness product. This is just a buzzkill. It's really yeah. a buzzkill. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's kind of evident of the the blurring lines around what we would consider sexual wellness, sex positivity and porn and the ways that you have to kind of straddle all of those if you want to be given the same tools that any other young business would be given, which I'm sure can be incredibly frustrating. But it, it also kind of begs the question, how do you know when something is porn? Like it's, I think famously, like Supreme Court famously, you know it when you see it is always the definition that's given to what is porn. But how do you just define what porn is in your view? That's a really good, I don't know. <laughs> you know, when you see it, or <laughs> when you hear it. It's funny because like we, ha- we did this like thing on Instagram, which is like things that are hot for no reason. People were like, oh, when a guy like does that reach around thing when he's driving or like, or like leg tattoos or things like that. Like, so in a way it's like everything. And also, um, also there's this famous quote that I love. That's everything is about sex except sex. And that's kind of how I feel about porn. Like everything in the world is sort of porn. If you really think about it. (laughs) Wow. Interesting. Okay. Wait. So now, now I'm curious. What's something that you think is hot for no reason? Did you have any to contribute? Oh, I have so many. (laughs) Let me think for a second. I love when like <laughs> when a guy's like taking off his hoodie and it like gets stuck. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. My boyfriend was riding the subway the other day and put his arm up on like the, the top level of the subway thing. And I was like, you have to stop doing this. This is not allowed. And I don't know why it just got me. But that's like, it's, it's, it's different for everybody. Like everybody has their weird little thing that you think is so hot. And like, that was a turn on. And they're like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. (laughs) The like push back the hair, put the hat on. Yeah, for sure. Um, Wow. This, I I feel like this could be a podcast in and of itself. (laughs) Just things that two women think are hot. I love it. It's a billion dollar idea. Someone can go take it. Um, Okay. So I want to kind of shift gears for a second here to talk about something that, um, you know, is is a big part of this episode of Thinking is Cool about making the porn industry more ethical. Uh, It's centered a lot around paying for porn in an effort to make a better industry that works for more people. Uh, And the the kind of the thrust of the episode, sorry, I had to, the thrust of the episode was about uh, making an industry that works better for creators. But, you know, to the, the point of this entire conversation we've had up until now, creating a better uh, porn industry is also better for the people out there who are not only consuming porn, but also having real world everyday kind of sex. So the conclusion that I kind of came to in this episode was that paying for porn creates a better porn industry. I'm curious to hear your perspective on this. And you can, you know, let the the experience with monetizing Quinn color this answer however you want. But what's your perspective on paying for porn? If we look at like streaming wars or whatever, as sort of like a parallel there was a time, and I know like a bunch of people remember this, like the time of like Napster or like when pirating sites were like a huge thing and you would just watch like your your normal like shows on pirated sites. And then there were like huge lobbying groups that from like the entertainment industry that went after all those sites that were sh- like sh- showing pirated content um, and really like shut them down. So I think that combines with the new platforms that have emerged, like now using Netflix is so much more easy and enjoyable than using one of those like spammy pirated sites that gives you a virus and it's like sketch, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of is like similar to Quinn in that we really want to 
have an experience that's worth paying for content that you can't find anywhere else, a, a UX that you can't find anywhere else, or that, that is like rare in the porn industry. I think sometimes porn companies that are trying to make it more premium, like right now, right, Pornhub virtually owns all the sites that it advertises for. So like, if you're on Pornhub, and you see an ad for like, you know, live cam, Pornhub MindGeek rather owns that site. So they're like just driving traffic between their various properties. And and hopefully, a small percentage of their total traffic will convert to a paid user on one of those like more premium sites. But I don't really think that those like premium sites are like premium and what we actually think as like consumers is premium, like Spotify is premium, Hulu is premium, you know, like that's something I'll pay for. I'm not going to pay for sort of like glitchy live cam site if I'm your average consumer. One thing that that I think like the government could honestly do, create regulation around the porn industry so that we can see, you know, like, okay, this is a ethical erotic content site. They deserve to be approved by Stripe. They deserve to be on the app store, blah, blah, blah. They can use all the technology of other modern tech companies and they can charge, you know, it's like, I think people would realistically pay for a better experience. Like, I think the stigma is a lot, but if you really cleaned it up, like basically made a Netflix, like a true Netflix, not just, oh, this is the Netflix of porn, but like a true Netflix of porn, I think people would seriously pay for it. First of all, you can't reach that like level of tech, of tech quality because you'll be banned from Cloudflare, you'll be banned from servers, like everything. So you can't even make a, a good tech product that people will be willing to pay for. Yeah, it almost feels like at the root of all of this, there is this tension between quality and quantity. You think about a lot of the tube sites, quantity is what they're bringing to the table. You can watch anything from millions of people doing millions of like whatever the hell you want to watch. It's it's there for the taking. It doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean that it is a, a solid product that was easy to access. But if you want to find it, you can probably find it on Pornhub. But people are, to your point, a lot more comfortable in this like post LimeWire, post Napster world of, of paying for things that are a premium product. Think about all of the streaming services that you pay for. I do Netflix, Hulu, Disney, HBO, like all of them, and I'm comfortable doing it, right? I'm like, well, I got to get my like Outlander fix, you know, <laughs> or like, I, I can't go a month without my special playlist from Spotify. And I'm okay with that. But how come I can't apply that logic to, and I can now after learning all this, but like how come the average person can't apply that logic to consuming porn and going right along with that? How come bankers or like VCs or any tech company out there can't apply that logic to creating the infrastructure and the frameworks to make these sites better? Like it's it's kind of a right. domino effect problem. Well, well, I think you're right. Like, I wouldn't blame yourself as the consumer. There's a lot of like blame on the consumer right now in this conversation of like, oh, you're a shitty person if you don't pay for your porn. But also like, let's look at like, is there truly a technically great product out there in the, in the visual porn space that I would want to pay a premium for? I can't say that I, that I would. And then when you talk about, oh, why won't these tech companies back a porn startup or whatever? I think one reason, well, OnlyFans is a good example of, I guess, one that they kind of would. But I think one reason is because of unethical practices in the porn industry, which is, again, brings me back to like the regulation. If they could be assured that like there were ethical practices in place, I think it would help things or just like like guardrails, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right now, it's there's a lot of underage people in the porn industry. There's a lot of abuse that happens. And 
and and like you said like payment is not on a is not done ethically so yeah yeah perhaps one of the best instances of irony that i can think of right now like picking up sex work or or porn adult entertainment legislation is like famously unsexy in Washington DC like it's not big tech antitrust regulation it's not healthcare it's not these things that are going to get you elected like saying that you want to create a better porn industry is not exactly a palatable campaign platform unfortunately so it's right. it's hard to imagine that that would like come to fruition at least immediately um, i don't know no i agree this is something that I think, you know, we kind of talked about this really briefly when we have spoken before, but this idea of having to almost present yourself as a tech company to get, I don't want to call it the respect, but to get the more like institutional interest from from VCs, from banks, from like anywhere that you need the backing to to be a successful startup. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like why you have to, a lot of these you know, sex startups are positioning themselves as like sex tech instead of just being about like helping people get off. Yeah, well, I don't think it's a lie, right? Because like a lot of what I do is like building our app, building our website, fixing our audio player, whatever, like that tech is involved in my job, but I wouldn't like call like Headspace a tech company. I guess maybe I would. They're more of like content company. Like Netflix is more of like a, but it's, it's the, it's the mesh of like content and tech that I think is the marker of these companies. I think we are more of a content company than we are a tech company, but I do feel like this push to be like sex tech. I mean, that's just like a fun word. It's also like, it's sexy, right? Like the idea that my sex life could be fancy and like futuristic and cool. I think that's exciting to people. And I think also it's marked by like vibrators and sex toys are, the market is exploding. And so I think there is this desire for sort of add-ons and like bells and whistles. But yeah, I think it also can sometimes fall into the same trap of like the wellness conversation where do we really need tech involved? Or or I guess that's not really the the right way to think about it. But I, I do feel like it's tech, sex tech to me feels like something that's pleasing, not necessarily the consumer, but this other force, like what the consumer feels like they have to be, or like the app store or Stripe or whatever it is that that makes it sound more like professional. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. But it's, it's you know, almost like this circular conversation of at the end of the day, why can't we just have a conversation about pleasure? Like how come that can't be a selling point? How come we can't just admit the fact that like orgasms feel good and that's okay? And right. and we're probably not going to solve that. Like we talked about at the beginning of this, like this is, this is probably not a problem that we will solve within this conversation or within any specific conversation. But I guess just having those conversations to begin with are possibly a, a potential add-on to the solution. <laughs> okay. So with all of this in mind, we started this conversation by talking about what you know you consider to be uh, quote unquote broken about the more traditional porn industry. Um, we've talked a lot about changing our perceptions of sex and our, our perceptions of porn as consumers, about paying for our content. What do you think is like the quickest fix? Is is there a quick fix for making porn more ethical. Regulation was also mentioned. Like what what would be your top priority in order to engineer a more ethical porn industry? What a great question. Okay, honestly, I feel like if big tech companies made it easier for young ethical sex 
companies to have access to great tech, I think that would really help things because then people would start paying a premium to use the service. Like if you had a porn site that legitimately was as good, and I hope Quinn is this, but that it legitimately is as like easy to use as like a Spotify or a Hulu or whatever, I think people would genuinely pay a subscription. And then the the people who were running that company could afford to pay performers a premium and royalties and affiliate revenue, et cetera. And I think like that, that could really change things. Yeah. Um, so basically it's all Google's fault and Facebook's fault. <laughs> Isn't it always? Isn't it always? <laughs> okay. So we have, have talked about a ton. This is incredible. I love speaking with you. I feel like I am, my brain is going at a hundred miles an hour right now. I want to hit on a couple of like fun, quick, rapidy fire things before I let you go. First of all, we got some questions from, we we posted on Instagram that we were going to have this conversation and got some interesting questions. The first one, which actually was, was not the only time I've seen this on Instagram when talking about porn. Somebody asked, how often is it okay to watch porn? So I figured, ask the expert. Oh man. You know what? I feel like once a day is the max. Like let's not be spending, let's not be doing it multiple times a day, guys. But if you want to hit it every morning, I think that's fun. I think it's okay. fun. And this is just this is for me. Yeah. <laughs> Make your own schedule, whatever feels right in your daily ritual works for you. There is your answer, Instagram follower. Do you think that traditional avenues of capital raising banks, bigger VC firms would ever get into porn or adult entertainment as an investment category? Okay. Yes, I do. I think that it's a marketing challenge. I always say like I market to two different audiences, VCs and then my users or, or Stripe and my users, because it's like, you just have to use different language. You cannot call it porn to a VC. You call it a sexual wellness company, a sexual health company, a sex positivity brand for women, whatever it is. But in actuality, what is the product? I, I like, I think it's porn. So, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. So, having <laughs> but I, to play both sides. But I guess also like, do I think VCs would ever get into visual porn? I don't think so. Not in the near future, but I don't know. Okay. Last one that we saw a lot on Instagram. This is one I think is pretty interesting. How can average people tell when the porn that they are consuming is considered quote unethical? Huh. It's hard to tell, honestly. I guess I would, I think on OnlyFans, it's pretty straightforward. So I would say that that's a good place. I would like just look at like lists of vetted ethical porn sites. Because a lot of the time, like if I'm just on Pornhub, you can't tell if something is revenge porn. You can't tell if something is pirated. It's not so easy to see to the naked eye. So yeah, yeah. Honestly, I wish that we could do another episode entirely about like the idea of revenge porn. I wrote a, a final exam paper about revenge porn when I was in a media law class in college. And it was, it's, it's mind blowing. Like it is crazy how much of that exists. I wish that people understood it better, but that will be a podcast for another time. <laughs> All right. So last thing I want to do we have decided to create a game, the Thinking is Cool game. We're going to play Thinking is Cool. So for every episode of the first season of Thinking is Cool, we've come up with some questions that we think kind of get to the root of the episode. And in all you know, my expectations is they will get people to think. So with that in mind, we are going to play Thinking is Cool for the How to Make Porn Suck Less episode. And the first question is this. Would you rather be a porn star or date a porn star? Date a porn star. Got it. I won't press you. <laughs> All right. 
has porn changed the way that you interpret sex or sexuality in your everyday life? Definitely. Do you think for better or worse? A mix. I I feel like it's just, it's the only time I see other people having sex. So it's always in my mind when I'm having sex. That makes sense. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's my only model. Yeah. Oh yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'm I'm like rewatching Sex and the City because I am a walking stereotype. Um, (laughs) But I just watched the episode where like the people across the street from like Carrie's apartment are having a ton of sex all the time. Like she's not having sex with Big. And it's it's like, you don't really see that in New York anymore, or at least I have not in my apartment. But that's the only model that you have for what actual sex looks like is seeing it online. Um, Okay, next question. Do you think that ethical porn exists today? Yes. Okay. And final question. Do you pay for your porn? Yes. Okay. It makes sense that you would. (laughs) So I hope that people who are listening would uh, take note of these questions, think about them, think about your answers for yourselves. And then of course, go ask your friends, put it in the group chat, send it in a DM, ask your parents at the dinner table, anything goes. And Caroline, Thank you so much. Do you have any any closing thoughts, anything you would like to add about this conversation, uh, about you know paying for porn, about ethical porn, about anything? The floor is yours. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. And I guess just that, you know, all of my the opinions I said, they're strong opinions, but they're loosely held. And I'm really just here to learn and, and think because thinking is cool. Yes, I love it. Exactly. And, you know, that's that's part of, I think, one of the biggest lessons we've learned in making this first season is that you can have really, really strong opinions and you can change your mind and that is okay. You can change your behavior. You can start paying for porn today, tomorrow, a week from now. The, you know, the, the ability to change is something that is incredible and something that we should really appreciate as much as we can. So um, think on things, talk about them with your friends, be willing to change your opinion, be willing to hear from other points of view um, and have a good one. And Caroline, thank you. I really, really appreciate your time. This has been so much fun. Uh, and thank you for continuing the conversation with us. Oh, anytime. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Continuing the Conversation from Thinking is Cool. I loved hearing Caroline's refreshingly honest takes on startups and sex and life in general. Speaking with her forced me outside of my comfort zone, and it's a comfort zone I created for myself in writing episode one of Thinking is Cool. The conversation also encouraged me to consider just how much more there is to uncover in the world of porn. I have a lot of research to do. I want to keep talking with smart people who are willing to continue the conversation. So if you have an idea for a super smart, super cool guest who might have something to say about an episode that I made, let me know. My email is kinsey at thinkingiscool.com and my DMs are always open. Thanks for listening. See you soon.